0: What's in a Name, Playing in the Onomastic Sandbox, Kevin L. Barney Read by Chris Heimerdinger Abstract Name as Keyword brings together a collection of essays, many of them previously published, whose consistent theme is exploring examples of onomastic wordplay or puns in Mormon scripture in general, and the Book of Mormon in particular. Without a knowledge of the meaning of these names, the punning in the scriptural accounts would not be recognized by modern English readers. Exploring the probable meaning of these names helps to open our eyes to how the scriptural authors used punning and other forms of wordplay to convey their messages in a memorable way. Review of Matthew L. Bowen, Name as Keyword. Collected Essays on Onomastic Wordplay and the Temple in Mormon Scripture, Salt Lake City, The Interpreter Foundation, and Eborn Books, 2018, 408 pages, 2495. Matthew L. Bowen, an assistant professor of religious education at BYU-Hawaii, who received his Ph.D. in Biblical Studies from Catholic University of America, has for some time now been publishing short studies that explore onomastic wordplay in Mormon scripture. Many of these essays have been previously published, often in the pages of Interpreter, a journal of Mormon scripture. The adjective onomastic derives from the Greek onomastikos, of or relating to names or naming, from Greek onoma, name. Bowen's work on proper names in scriptural texts unavoidably brushes up against naughty issues in Book of Mormon translation theory, such as loose versus tight control, the extent of linguistic evolution over a thousand-year period, Creolization with other languages, the whole concept of inspired translation, what the learning of the Jews and the language of the Egyptians from 1st 1 Nephi 1-2 is supposed to mean, and so forth. Two methodological notes at pages Roman numeral XLVIII to XLIX and 18 to 19 make clear that he is thoroughly familiar with these issues. But if we had to solve them first, before commenting meaningfully on Book of Mormon language, we would never get anywhere. So he essentially brackets such issues, and takes verse Nephi 1-2 as warrant for meaning Hebrew and Egyptian as relevant languages for the Book of Mormon text, which strikes me as a fair way to proceed. Some of these theoretical issues concerning Book of Mormon translation are also touched on briefly by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw, a moving force behind the publication of this volume, in a six-page foreword. Here I will critique and comment on the first essay in the volume. I have also included an appendix, written by Bowen himself, and included in the book, which provides complete summaries of all sixteen chapters. On Nephi's Good Inclusio Chapter 1, titled, Nephi's Good Inclusion Essentially posits that, one, the name Nephi means good, two, Nephi plays on the meaning of his own name when he refers to the goodness of his own parents, or the goodness of God, and three, such wordplay occurs both at the beginning and at the end of his corpus— thus forming a rhetorical framing device called an inclusio. The three words in his title for this chapter correspond to the three propositions he makes. I will comment on these propositions in order. Nephi For the suggested wordplay to be meaningful, we must posit that the name Nephi meant good, and that Nephi knew this there have been various suggestions for the etymology of nephi but the book of mormon onomasticon opines that the most likely derivation of the name nephi is ancient egyptian nfr good beautiful at first blush this seems unlikely since the final r is not represented in nephi but that is actually not a difficulty, since the final R can elide. Bowen explains that during and after Lehi's time, the name would have been pronounced something like Nephi, Nafi, or Naufi. The word came into Coptic as Nauphi in northern dialects or Naufe in southern dialects. I remember reading John Gee's treatment of this name in 1992, and in subsequent work, and it struck me as persuasive. So if the name Nephi is of ancient origin, I think Bowen is justified in considering it as deriving from the Egyptian NFR. Good. Nephi opens his record with these words, I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents— Therefore I was taught somewhat in all the learning of my Father, and having seen many afflictions in the course of my days, nevertheless, having been highly favoured of the Lord in all my days, having had great knowledge of the goodness and the mysteries of God, therefore I make a record of my proceedings in my days. First Nephi 1, verse 1. So Nephi begins by reciting his own name, which means good, and then plays on that meaning in referring to the goodness of his parents and the goodness of God. This verse is the opening frame of the posited inclusio, discussed further in a moment. A significant issue arises whether the goodly in goodly parents actually means good or something else. Over the past decade and earlier, this has become an important and contested point, and I would like to devote some discussion to this question. The traditional reading of this passage is that goodly equals good, perhaps with the connotation righteous. One way to demonstrate this is by consulting translations of the English Book of Mormon into other languages, in which a word for good is generally used such as spanish buenos some time ago another theory for how to take the word goodly in this passage arose of which i first learned from the late mark schindler the basic idea was to take goodly in the sense of possessed of goods thus meaning wealthy affluent nephi was able to receive an education an expensive proposition because his parents were affluent and could afford it. I thought it was an intriguing idea, and goodly seemed like it might bear such a meaning in Jacobian patter, but I took an agnostic stance on the suggestion until I could look into it further. Six years ago, I decided to take a crack at the issue. The first thing I did was actually look up goodly in the dictionary, And I was surprised to learn that it does not actually mean good, according to lexical sources. The dictionary I keep in my office has, one, pleasantly attractive, two, significantly large, considerable, a goodly number. The 1828 Webster's, often consulted because of its proximity to the publication of the Book of Mormon, had the following... Being of a handsome form, beautiful, graceful, as a goodly person, goodly raiment, goodly houses, pleasant, agreeable, desirable, as goodly days, bulky, swelling, affectedly turgid. The Oxford Dictionary had the following. 1. Of good appearance, good-looking, well-favored, or proportioned, comely, fair, handsome. 2 notable or considerable in respect in size quantity or number frequently with mixture of sense one three of good quality admirable splendid excellent also well suited for some purpose proper convenient often with the implication of sense one four gracious kind kindly disposed so i quickly saw that i faced a dilemma did goodly in First Nephi 1 mean good per the traditional LDS reading? Did it mean attractive per the lexical meaning? Or did it mean wealthy per the revisionist reading? Ultimately, context trumps the dictionary. The word, therefore, in the Book of Mormon text requires a casual relationship between Nephi's parents being goodly and Nephi's being taught somewhat in all the learning of his father. Since Lehi and Sariah as pleasantly attractive would have nothing to do with Nephi's being so taught, the primary lexical meaning of the word simply does not work in our passage, which would seem to leave us where we started, with a choice between the traditional good and the revisionist wealthy. I decided the best way to gain some insight into this question would be to examine the usage of the word goodly in our scriptural canon. The word appears 38 times in our scriptures, 29 in the King James Version, Old Testament, 4 in the KJV New Testament, 4 in the Doctrine and Covenants, and one other time in the Book of Mormon. I thought the usage in the KJV would be especially probative because there we could check the underlying Hebrew and Greek words to determine the intended shade of meaning the results of my inquiry are set forth below 1 genesis 27:15 and rebecca took goodly raiment hebrew chemdah that which is desired pleasant excellent 2 GENESIS 39.6. JOSEPH WAS A GOODLY PERSON, AND WELL-FAVORED. HEBREW. TOR. BEAUTIFUL. IN FORM. 3. GENESIS 49.21. HE GIVETH GOODLY WORDS. HEBREW. SHEPHER. BEAUTY. ELEGANCE. OF WORDS. 4. EXODUS 2.2. 2. SHE SAW HIM THAT HE WAS A GOODLY CHILD. Hebrew, tob, good, in various senses fair, beautiful. Five, Exodus 39:28, goodly bonnets. Hebrew, pa'er, an ornament, tiara, turban. Six, Leviticus 23:40, the boughs of goodly trees. Hebrew, hadar, ornament, i.e. ornamental trees. Seven. Numbers twenty four five How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, Hebrew Tob, good in various senses, beautiful pleasant eight. Numbers thirty one ten. All their goodly castles Hebrew Tira, a fortress enclosure. nine. Deuteronomy three twenty five, that goodly mountain, Hebrew Tob, good in various senses. 10 deuteronomy 6:10 to give thee great and goodly cities hebrew tob good in various senses 11 deuteronomy 8:12 hast built goodly houses hebrew tob good in various senses 12 joshua 7:21 a goodly babylonish garment hebrew tob good in various senses fair beautiful 13 1 Samuel 9:2 Saul a choice young man and a goodly hebrew tob good in various senses 14 1 Samuel 16:12 of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to hebrew tob good in various senses 15 2 Samuel 23:21 an egyptian a goodly man Hebrew, mar e, form appearance. 16, 1 Kings one six, and he also was a very goodly man. Hebrew, tob, good in various senses. Seventeen, Second Chronicles six ten, with the goodly vessels. Hebrew, CHEMDAH. that which is desired, pleasant. Eighteen, Second Chronicles six nineteen, all the goodly vessels. Hebrew. Makmad, Object of desire, grace, beauty, something precious. 19. Job 39.13. Gavest thou the goodly wings unto the peacocks. Hebrew. nananan, Meaning uncertain, something having to do with the sound of the wings. 20. Psalms 16.6. I have a goodly heritage. Hebrew. Shefar. Pleasing. 21. Psalms 80.10. The Goodly Cedars. Hebrew. El. Mighty. Literally godlike. 22. Jeremiah 3.19. A goodly heritage of hosts of nations. Hebrew. Sebi. Splendor. Glory. In other words, beautiful. 23. Jeremiah 11.16. A green olive tree fair and of goodly fruit, Hebrew to R, a beautiful form, i.e. beautiful. twenty-four. Ezekiel seventeen eight, that it might be a goodly vine, Hebrew, Adareth, wide, ample, thus magnificent, splendid. 25. Ezekiel seventeen twenty-three, and be a goodly cedar. Hebrew adir, large, great, mighty, powerful, magnificent. Twenty-six, Hosea ten one, they have made goodly images. Hebrew tob, good in various senses. Twenty-seven, Joel three five, my goodly pleasant things. Hebrew tob, good in various senses. Twenty-eight, Zechariah ten three. AS HIS GOODLY HORSE IN THE BATTLE. Hebrew, Hod. Splendor, freshness, beauty, and thus majestic. 29. Zechariah 11.13. A GOODLY PRICE THAT I WAS APPRISED AS OF THEM. Hebrew, Adair. Magnificence, thus magnificence of price, said ironically. 30. Matthew 13.45. GOODLY PEARLS. Greek, Kalos. Beautiful. Beautiful. Pleasing in form, thirty-one. Luke twenty-one five, adorned with goodly stones. Greek kalos, beautiful, pleasing in form, thirty-two. James two two, goodly apparel. Greek lampros, shining, brilliant, and thus splendid, magnificent. Thirty-three. Revelation eighteen fourteen, all things which were dainty and goodly, Greek. Lampros shining brilliant and thus splendid, magnificent. thirty four. Mosiah eighteen seven. There were a goodly number gathered together at the place of Mormon. thirty five. Doctrine and Covenants ninety nine seven. Thou mayest go up also to the goodly land to possess thine inheritance. Note that in Hebrew Tob, when used of land has the connotation fertile 36 doctrine and covenants ninety seven nine, planted in a goodly land by a pure stream note that in hebrew tob when used of land has the connotation fertile 37 doctrine and covenants 10320 possess the goodly land note that in hebrew tob when used of land has the connotation fertile 38 DOCTRINE AND COVENANTS 103.24 TO DRIVE YOU FROM MY GOODLY LAND NOTE THAT IN HEBREW TOB, WHEN USED OF LAND HAS THE CONNOTATION FERTILE. THE OTHER BOOK OF MORMON OCCURRENCE, MOSIAH 18.7 THERE WAS A GOODLY NUMBER GATHERED TOGETHER AT THE PLACE OF MORMON IS AN ATTESTED LEXICAL USAGE AND MEANS THERE WAS A CONSIDERABLE NUMBER GATHERED TOGETHER AT THE PLACE OF MORMON. The four Doctrine and Covenants occurrences all reflect a particular idiom connecting goodly with the land, where goodly land means fertile land. The four New Testament occurrences are clearly within the lexical range of meaning. Two, a translation of Greek kalos, beautiful, and two, a translation of Greek lampros, shining, the Old Testament usage of the word goodly, which is by far the most extensive in the scriptures, reflects substantial diversity in the underlying Hebrew. Of the twenty-nine occurrences, eighteen different Hebrew words are translated with English goodly, many with various nuances of the lexical meaning. The other eleven occurrences of goodly in the King James Version Old Testament are all renderings of the Hebrew word tob, which functionally means good, with various shades of meaning. The English translational tradition sometimes renders these occurrences simply as good, other times with English words that would better fit the lexical meanings of English goodly, such as fine and the like. Nowhere in the King James Bible is the word goodly used in the sense of wealthy, In fact, I am unaware of any example in the English language where goodly is used to mean wealthy, which is why that meaning is not so cataloged in lexical sources. In the comments to my blog post on this subject, someone pointed out that Joseph Smith used this same expression in his 1832 history. I was born in the town of Sharon in the state of Vermont, North America on the 23rd day of December, A.D. 1805, of goodly parents, who spared no pains instructing me in the Christian religion. Goodly here cannot bear the meaning wealthy, a term surely never applied to his own parents. If it meant wealthy, in 1 Nephi 1.1, Joseph misunderstood the word when he used it here. I think the more parsimonious reading is that in Joseph's usage, goodly simply meant good. I suspect he used goodly rather than simply good to give the word a bit of an archaic flavor. Accordingly, I concur with the conclusion of Bowen, as expressed at the end of a lengthy note on the issue, that the idea of goodly parents means wealthy parents cannot be sustained. Note, after I had written the above, the most recent edition of BYU Studies Quarterly appeared in my mailbox, which includes the article by Grant Hardy, Approaching Completion, The Book of Mormon Critical Text Project, which includes a paragraph relevant to the question. Grant Hardy had written a letter to Royal Skousen in which he wondered whether Nephi's self-description as one who had been born of goodly parents might be a mistake for born of godly parents. Hardy describes Skousen's analysis of his suggestion. On the one hand, goodly does not exactly mean good, and a search of early English books online yields no instances of goodly parents, but 1,185 occurrences of godly parents including four passages with born of godly parents, some of which date back to the 17th century. On the other hand, goodly more or less works. Scousen states that the Oxford English Dictionary provides evidence that one archaic meaning for goodly was, in fact, good. And there are no examples of scribes ever mixing up God and good. So, in the end, he rejects the proposed emendation. Hardy notes that he agrees with Skousen's final judgment, and observes that the OED, which is ultimately more useful than Webster, never actually offers good as a definition for goodly, but it does list virtuous, excellent, and fine as archaic usages. So, good enough. Of the Nibley proposal that goodly equals wealthy, Hardy comments as follows. Since these definitions appear idiosyncratic too nibbly, with no precedence in the English language listed in the OED, I would rule them out of bounds, and I would similarly disagree with Skousen's insistence that the education provided to Nephi by his goodly parents was secular rather than religious. The latter would better fit precedence for godly parents." since that distinction strikes me as anachronistic with regard to ancient literacy especially when the only text nephi ever cites is the brass plates whose egyptian script mosiah 1:4 he could read thanks to the learning of his father which included the language of the egyptians first nephi 1:1 and 2 hardy's discussion simply cements in my mind the conclusions i had already reached that in first nephi one one goodly simply means good inclusio an inclusion is a type of distant parallelism between material at the beginning of a section of text and that at the end of a section thus framing or bracketing the material in the middle for example in an article on mother in heaven I identified an inclusio in Proverbs 3:13 through 18 which happened to be chiastic in nature a happy verse 13 ashrei b wisdom verse 13 chokmah a framed material in verses 14 through 17 b tree of life verse 18 etz kaim a happy verse 18 Mi-ushar, same root as Asherah. The word happy was often used to allude to the goddess Asherah, due to similarity of sound, especially during the time in Israelite history, unfavorable to the goddess. Lady wisdom was one of the ways Asherah was reconceptualized over time, and the tree of life alludes to her worship. One question I had when reading Bowen's argument was whether or not inclusio occurred at such distances as he posited, in other words, the whole world of first and second Nephi. Turning to that fountain of all human knowledge, Wikipedia, S.V. Inclusio, the section on the Hebrew Bible focused on several distant examples in the writings of Jeremiah, Lehi's contemporary, for instance, consider this distant inclusio between chapters 1 and 24, which also happens to be chiastic. A. See, I have this day set over thee the nations, and over the kingdoms, to root out, to pull down, to destroy, and to throw down, to build, and to plant. Jeremiah one ten. B. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Jeremiah 1.11 Framed material between Jeremiah and 24. B. Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Jeremiah 24.3 a. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them, and not pull them down, and I will plant them, and not pluck them up. Jeremiah 24.6 So, returning to Bowen's argument, recall that he posited First 1 Nephi 1.1 1, 1 with its threefold focus on good, goodness, as the opening frame of his posited inclusio. The closing frame is a threefold emphasis on doing good in 2 Nephi 33, the final chapter of his corpus. First comes 2 Nephi three four, And I know that the Lord God will consecrate my prayers for the gain of my people, and the words which I have written in weakness will be made strong unto them, for it persuadeth them to do Good. It maketh known unto them of their fathers, and it speaketh of Jesus, and persuadeth them to believe in him, and to endure to the end, which is life eternal. Bowen notes that Nephi starts by referring to the words which I have written in the plural, but then conceptualizes his plural words as a singular, with, It persuadeth to do good and subsequent singular forms, apparently conceptualizing his record as a single, unified production. Second comes Second Nephi 33, 10. And now, my beloved brethren, and also Jew, and all ye ends of the earth, hearken unto these words, and believe in Christ. And if ye believe not in these words, believe in Christ." And if ye shall believe in Christ, ye will believe in these words. For they are the words of Christ, and he hath given them unto you. And they teach all men that they should do good. Bowen notes that the verb believe is repeated five times in this verse alone, and the end of such belief is that all should do good. Third and finally comes the next-to-last verse of his corpus, Second Nephi 33:14. And you that will not partake of the goodness of God, and respect the words of the Jews, and also my words, and the words which shall proceed forth out of the mouth of the Lamb of God, behold, I bid you an everlasting farewell, for these words shall condemn you at the last day. So, does this threefold mention of good, goodness, in Nephi's final words suffice to constitute a close bracket to the open bracket of the threefold invocation of good in 1 Nephi 1? I think that it does. And I take it that the point of this inclusio is to highlight the importance of the goodness of God as a conceptual theme throughout his writings. By my count, Nephi uses the terms good, goodness, a total of 31 times throughout his writings, only four of which derive from the lengthy Isaiah material incorporated in toto in 2 Nephi. So his emphasis on the goodness of God does seem to be a major theme of his work. Bowen also points out that later writers initiated Nephi's introduction in writing of their own, I WAS PARTICULARLY IMPRESSED BY HIS COMPARISON OF THE INTRODUCTION OF ENOS WITH THAT OF NEPHI. FIRST NEPHI 1-1 I, NEPHI, EGYPTIAN, N-F-R, Nephi, GOODLY, HAVING BEEN BORN OF GOODLY PARENTS, THEREFORE I WAS TAUGHT, SOMEWHAT IN ALL THE LEARNING OF MY FATHER. ENOS 1-1 I, ENOS, Hebrew, ENOS, MAN, knowing my father that he was a just man, for he taught me in his language. What particularly impressed me about this presentation was that where Nephi makes a pun on his name, meaning good, by referring to his goodly parents, Enos similarly makes a pun on his own name, meaning man, by referring to his father as a just man. Conclusion I found Bowen's exploration of the significance of names and wordplay concerning them in Mormon scripture to be both fun and interesting. He obviously has the background, knowledge, and personal interest to do this and do it well. Reading these passages through the lens of Bowen's insights helps to bring the text to life. I recommend the book to those who enjoy this type of detailed scriptural study. Appendix: A Synopsis of the Sixteen Essays Editors note This appendix is reproduced from Name as Keyword Collected Essays on Onomastic Word Play and the Temple in Mormon Scripture Nephi's Good Inclusio In the opening chapter I endeavor to demonstrate that Nephi's name and its meaning adjective good, goodly, fine, fair, noun, goodness, was not only important in terms of Nephi's autobiography, but also was the overarching message of his writings. Nephi concludes his personal writings on the small plates using the terms good and goodness of God. This terminological bracketing, a literary device used anciently, is called inclusio. Nephi's literary emphasis on good and goodness not only befits his personal name but fulfills the lord's directive thou shalt engraven many things which are good in my sight second nephi 5:30, a command which also plays on the name nephi this essay further shows how nephi's autobiographical introduction and conclusion proved to be enormously influential on subsequent writers some of nephi's successors modeled autobiographical and narrative-biographical introductions on 1 Nephi 1, 1 and 2, and based sermons, especially concluding sermons, on Nephi's good conclusion in 2 Nephi 33. An emphasis in all these sermons is that all good goodness ultimately has its source in God and Christ. Most desirable above all things. This volume's second essay examines the linguistic connection between the names Mary, Egyptian, beloved, Mormon, and the love of God. The names Mary and Mormon most plausibly derive from the Egyptian lexeme, M-R-I, love, desire, or wish. Mary denotes beloved, i.e., of deity and is thus conceptually connected with divine love. While Mormon evidently denotes desire, love is enduring. Upon seeing Mary, the mother of God, First 1 Nephi 11.18, critical text, bearing the infant Messiah in her arms in vision, Nephi, who already knew that God loveth his children, perceived that the meaning of the fruit-bearing tree of life is... The love of God, which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men, wherefore it is the most desirable above all things. First Nephi 11:17 through 25. Many generations later, Alma the Elder and his people entered into a covenant and formed a church based on love and good desires. Mosiah 18:21, 28 a covenant directly tied to the waters of mormon and desire mosiah 18:8 through 11 alma the younger in the next generation recalled the song of redeeming love that his father and others had sung at the waters of mormon alma 5:3 through 9 and verse 26 see mosiah 18:30 mormon whose father mormon named his son after himself and the land of mormon and its waters third nephi 512 repeatedly characterized charity as everlasting love or the pure love of christ that endureth forever moroni 747 through 48 816 through 17 and verse 26 all of this has implications for latter day saints or mormons who as children of the covenant must endure to the end in Christ like love, as Mormon and Moroni did, particularly in days of diminishing faith, faithfulness, and love. CEG Mormon three twelve contrast Moroni nine five. Joseph, Benjamin, and Gezira Shawa. The third essay endeavors to show how the Book of Mormon contains several quotations from the Hebrew Bible that have been juxtaposed on the basis of shared words or phrases, this for the purpose of interpreting the cited scriptural passages in light of one another. Nephi and his successors employed an exegetical technique, one that Jesus himself used— that came to be known in later rabbinic times as Gezira-Shawa, equal statute. In several additional instances, the use of Gezira-Shawa converges with onomastic wordplay. Nephi uses a Gezira-Shawa involving Isaiah 11.11 and Isaiah 29.14 twice on the basis of the yasap verb forms yasip, Josipe, Second nephi twenty-five seventeen, and quoting the Lord in Second Nephi twenty-nine one, to create a stunning wordplay of the name Joseph. In another instance, King Benjamin uses Gazirah Shawa, involving Psalm two seven two, Samuel seven fourteen, and Deuteronomy fourteen one verses one and two, on the basis of the Hebrew noun bean, son. Plural, benim, beinat, sons and daughters, on which to build a rhetorical wordplay on his own name. This second sophisticated wordplay, which alludes to Psalm 110, verse 1, on account of the noun yenim, right hand, was ready made for King Benjamin's temple audience, who, on the occasion of Mosiah's coronation, we receiving their own endowment to become sons and daughters at god's right hand the use of gazirah shawa was often christological e.g. jacob's gazirah shawa on eben stone in jacob 4:15 through 17 and alma's gazirah shawa on zenus's and Zenix's phrase because of thy son in alma 33 Eleven through sixteen see alma thirty three four through seventeen taken together, these examples suggest that we should pay more attention to the scripture's use of scripture and in particular the use of this exegetical practice in doing so, we will better discern the ancient prophetic messages preserved in the Book of Mormon. What thank they the Jews. In the fourth essay, I examine a wordplay on the name Judah-Jews against the backdrop of etiologies for the name Judah in Genesis 30 and 49, and the Lord's repeated warning against Gentile, including Gentile-Christian, anti-Semitism in the Book of Mormon. Genesis explains the meaning of the personal and tribal name Judah, from which the term Jews derives in terms of praising or thanking. In other words, the Jews are those who are praised out of a feeling of gratitude. The Genesis etiologies have important implications for the Lord's words to Nephi regarding Gentile ingratitude and anti-Semitism across the centuries. And what thank they the Jews for the Bible which they receive from them? Second Nephi 29.4 Gentile Christian anti-Semitism, like the concomitant doctrine of supersessionism, can be traced in part to widespread misunderstanding and misapplication of Paul's words regarding Jews and praise. Romans 2.28-29 Moreover the strongest scriptural warnings against antisemitism are to be found in the Book of Mormon which also offers the reassurance that the Jews are still mine ancient covenant people 2 Nephi 29 4 through 5 and testifies of the Lord's love and special concern for them And there wrestled a man with him Jacob Enos Israel and Peniel In the fifth chapter, I propose several instances in which the Book of Mormon prophet Enos uses wordplay on his own name, the name of his father, Jacob, the place name, Peniel, and Jacob's new name, Israel, in order to connect his experiences to those of his ancestor, Jacob, in Genesis chapters 32 and 33, thus infusing them with greater meaning. Familiarity with Jacob and Esau's conciliatory embrace in Genesis 33 is essential to understanding how Enos views the atonement of Christ, and the ultimate realization of its blessings in his life. Young Man, Hidden Prophet, Alma In the sixth chapter, I examine how the biographical introduction of Alma the Elder into the Book of Mormon narrative, Mosiah 17.2, also introduces the name Alma into the text for the first time. This in close juxtaposition with a description of Alma as a young man. The best explanation for the name Alma is that it derives from the Semitic term Glem, G-L-M, Hebrew Elem young man, youth, lad. This strongly suggests the possibility of an intentional wordplay on the name Alma in the Book of Mormon's underlying text. Alma became God's young man or servant. Additional lexical connections between Mosiah 17.2 and Mosiah 14.1, quoting Isaiah 53.1, Suggest that Abinadi identified Alma as the one to whom, or upon whom, Almi, the Lord, was revealing his arm as Abinadi's prophetic successor. Alma began his prophetic succession when he believed Abinadi's report, and pled with King Noah for Abinadi's life. Forced to flee, Alma began his prophetic ministry hidden and concealed, while writing the words of Abinadi and teaching them privately. The narrative's dramatic emphasis on this aspect of Alma's life suggests an additional thread of wordplay that exploits the homonymy between Alma and the Hebrew root LM, forms of which mean to hide, conceal, be hidden, or be concealed. The richness of the wordplay and allusion revolving around Alma's name in Mosiah 17 and 18 accentuates his importance as a prophetic figure and founder of the later Nephite church. Moreover, it suggests that Alma's name was appropriate. The details we learn of his life demonstrate that he lived up to the positive connotations latent in his name. Father is a man, Abish. In the seventh essay, I begin with the observation that the mention of Abish and a remarkable vision of her father, Alma 1916, is itself remarkable since women and servants are rarely named in the Book of Mormon text. As a Hebrew Lehite name, Abish suggests the meaning Father is a man. The Midrashic components A.B. Father and I.S. Man being phonologically evident thus the immediate juxtaposition of the name abish with the terms her father and woman raises the possibility of wordplay on her name in the underlying text since abe names were frequently theophoric i.e. they had reference to a divine father or could be so understood the mention of abish father is a man takes on additional theological significance in the context of Lamoni's vision of the Redeemer being born of a woman, and redeeming all mankind. Alma 19, verse 13. The wordplay on Abish thus contributes thematically to the narrative's presentation of Ammon's typological ministrations among the Lamanites as a man, endowed with great power, which helped the Lamanites understand the concept of the Great Spirit, Yahweh becoming man. Moreover, this word-play accords with the consistent Book of Mormon doctrine that the very Eternal Father would, and did, condescend to become man, and suffering servant. They were moved with compassion. The eighth essay explores Hebraistic, toponymic word-play on the names Zarahemla and Gershon in the Lamanite emigration narratives. As in Hebrew Biblical narrative, word play on or play on the meaning of toponyms or place names constitutes a discernible feature of Book of Mormon narrative. The text repeatedly juxtaposes the toponym jershon, place of inheritance or place of possession, with terms inherit, inheritance, possess, possession, and the like. Similarly, the Mulekite personal name Zarahemla, seed of compassion, seed of pity, which becomes the paramount Nephite toponym as their national capital after the time of Mosiah I, is juxtaposed with the term compassion. Both wordplay occurs and recurs at crucial points in Nephite-Lamanite history. Moreover, both occur in connection with the migration of the first-generation Lamanite converts. The Gershon wordplay recurs in the second generation when the people of Ammon receive Zoramite reconverts into the land of Gershon, and wordplay on Zarahemla recurs subsequently when the sons of these Lamanite converts come to the rescue of the Nephite nation. Rhetorical wordplay on Zarahemla also surfaces in important speeches later in the Book of Mormon. See that ye are not lifted up, Zoram and the Ramiumtum. In the ninth essay, I propose that the most likely etymology for the name Zoram is a verbal third-person singular perfect qual, or po'al, form of the Semitic Hebrew lexeme zemer, z-m-r, meaning he, God, has, is, poured forth in floods. However, the name could also have been heard and interpreted as a theophoric, Ram name, of which there are many in the biblical Hebrew onomasticon, e.g. Ram, Abram, Abram, Joram, Jehoram, Malkiram, C.F. Hiram, or Huram, whether or not it originated as such. Thus analyzed, Zoram could connote something like the one who is high, the one who is exalted, or even the person of the exalted one, or high place. This has important implications for the later pejoration of the name Zoram and its gentilic derivative, Zoramites, in Alma's and Mormon's account of the zoramite apostasy and attempts made to rectify it in alma 31 through chapter 35 cf alma 38 and chapter 39 alma also describes the ramiumtum as a high stand or a place for standing high above the head hebrew ram alma 3113 not unlike the great and spacious building which stood, as it were, in the air, high above the earth. See First Nephi 8.26, which suggests a double word play on the name Zoram in terms of Ram and Ramiumtum in Alma 31. Moreover, Alma plays on the idea of Zoramites as those being high or lifted up when counseling his son, Shiblon, to avoid being like the Zoramites, and replicating the mistakes of his brother Corianton, Alma 38, 3-5, 11-14. Mormon, perhaps influenced by the Zoramite apostasy, and the magnitude of its effects, may have incorporated further pejorative word-play on the Zoram-derived names Cezoram and Caesaram, in order to emphasize that the Nephites had become lifted up in pride like the Zoramites during the judgeships of those judges. The Zoramites and their apostasy represent a type of latter-day Gentile pride and apostasy, of which Nephi, Mormon, and Moroni warned repeatedly. He is a good man. The tenth essay returns to the subject of the name Nephi and its significance within the Helaman narratives. Mormon, as an author and editor, was concerned to show the fulfillment of earlier Nephite prophecy when such fulfillment occurred. Mormon took care to show that Nephi and Lehi, the sons of Helaman, fulfilled their fathers' prophetic and paranetic expectations regarding them, as enshrined in their given names, the names of their first parents. It had been said and also written, Helaman 5, 6, and 7, that Nephi's and Lehi's namesakes were good, in 1 Nephi 1, 1. Using onomastic play on the meaning of Nephi, Mormon demonstrates in Helaman 8, 7, that it also came to be said and written of Nephi, the son of Helaman, that he was good. Moreover, Mormon shows Nephi that his brother Lehi was not a whit behind him in this regard. Helaman 11.19. During their lifetimes, i.e. during the time of the fulfillment of Mosiah's forewarning regarding societal and political corruption, see Mosiah 29.27, that especially included secret combinations, Nephi and Lehi stood firm against Increasingly popular organized evil. My people are willing, Aminadab. The eleventh essay explores how Aminadab, a Nephite by birth who later descended to the Lamanites, played a crucial role in the mass conversion of 300 Lamanites and eventually many others. At the end of the pericope, in which these events are recorded, Mormon states, And thus we see that the Lord began to pour out His Spirit upon the Lamanites because of their easiness and willingness to believe in His words. Helaman 6.36 Whereas He began to withdraw His Spirit from the Nephites because of the wickedness and the hardness of their hearts. Helaman 6.35 The name Aminadab is a Semitic Hebrew name meaning, My kinsman is willing, or My people are willing. As a dissenter, Aminadab was a man of two peoples. Mormon, and probably his source, were aware of the meaning of Aminadab's name, and the irony of that meaning in the context of the latter's role in the Lamanite conversions and the spiritual history of the Nephites and Lamanites. The narratives' mention of Aminadab's name, Helaman 5:39 and 41, and Mormon's echoes of it in Helaman 6:36, Third Nephi 6:14, and elsewhere, have covenant and temple significance, not only in their ancient scriptural setting but also for Latter-day readers of the Book of Mormon. Getting Cain and gain. The twelfth chapter explains how the biblical etiology story of origin for the name Cain associates his name with the Hebrew verb QNY, QNH, to get, gain, acquire, create, or procreate in a positive sense. A fuller form of this etiology, known to us indirectly through the Book of Mormon text and directly through the restored text of the Joseph Smith Translation, creates additional wordplay on Cain that associates his name with murder to get gain. This fuller narrative is thus also an etiology for organized evil, secret combinations built up to get power and gain, Ether 822 and 23, 1115. The original etiology exerted a tremendous influence on Book of Mormon writers, especially Nephi, Jacob, Alma, Mormon, and Moroni, who frequently used allusions to this narrative and sometimes replicated the wordplay on Cain and getting gain. The fuller narrative seems to have exerted its greatest influence on Mormon and Moroni, who witnessed the destruction of their nation firsthand, destruction catalyzed by canitic secret combinations. Moroni, in particular, invokes the Cain etiology in describing the destruction of the Jaredites by secret combinations. The destruction of two nations by kinetic secret combinations stands as two witnesses and a warning to Latter-day Gentiles and Israel against building up these societies and allowing them to flourish. PLACE OF CRUSHING HESHLON HESHLON Chapter 13, co-written with Pedro Olavria, explains how the name Heshlon, attested once in Ether 1328 as a toponym in the Book of Mormon, most plausibly denotes place of crushing. The meaning of Heshlon thus takes on significance in the context of Ether 1325-31, through which describes the crushing, or enfeebling, of Coriantumr's armies and royal power. This meaning is also important in the wider context of Moroni's narrative of the Jaredite's destruction. Fittingly, Moroni's mention of the name Heshlon itself serves as a literary turning point in the chiastic structure of a text that describes the fateful reversal of Coriantumr's individual fortunes, and the worsening of the Jaredite's collective fortunes. Moroni, who witnessed the gradual crushing and destruction of the Nephites, seemingly mentioned this name in his abridgment of the book of Ether, on account of the high irony of its meaning in view of the Jaredite war of attrition, which served as a precursor to the destruction of the Nephites. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen and provided." Chapter 14 examines the ancient temple as a place where, for ancient Israelites, sacrifice and theophany, seeing God or other heavenly beings, converged. The account of Abraham's arrested sacrifice of Isaac, Genesis 22, and the account of the arrested slaughter of Jerusalem, following David's unauthorized census of Israel, Second Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21, served as etiological narratives, explanations of cause or origin, for the location of the Jerusalem temple and its sacrifices. Thematic wordplay on the verb re'ah, to see, in these narratives, creates an etiological link between the place names Jehovah Jira, Moriah, and the threshing floor of Orona Ornan, pointing to the future location of the Jerusalem temple as the place of theophany and sacrifice par excellence. Isaac's arrested sacrifice of the vicarious animal sacrifices of the temple anticipated Jesus' later unarrested sacrifice, since, as Jesus himself stated, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. John 8:56. Sacrifice itself constituted a kind of theophany, in which one's own redemption could be seen, and the scriptures of the Restoration confirm that Abraham and many others, even a great many thousand years before the coming of Christ, saw Jesus' sacrifice and rejoiced. Additionally, theophany and sacrifice converge in the canonized revelations regarding the building of the latter-day temple these temple revelations begin with a promise of theophany and mandate sacrifice from its latter-day saints in essence the temple itself was and is christ's atonement having its intended effect on humanity founded upon a rock peter's surnaming the 15th chapter recommends that the famous Petros Petra wordplay in Matthew 16:18 does not constitute Jesus' identification of Peter as the rock upon which his church would be built. This wordplay does, however, identify him with the rock, or bedrock, inasmuch as Peter, a small seer stone, JST John 1, verse 42, had the potential to become like the Savior himself, the Rock of Ages, or Rock of Heaven, Moses 7.53. One aspect of that rock is the revelation that comes through faith that Jesus is the Messiah. Other aspects of that same rock are the other principles and ordinances of the gospel, including temple ordinances. The temple, a symbol of the Savior and his body, is also a symbol of the eternal family, the sure house built upon a rock. As such, the temple is the perfect embodiment of Peter's labor in the priesthood, against which hell will not prevail. Matthew 16.18 You more than owe me this benefit, Phulemon and Onesimus. The sixteenth chapter analyzes Paul's use of wordplay and punning involving the names Fulimon affectionate one, and Onesimus, useful, and their meanings in his letter to Phulemon, the believing, anachronistically, Christian owner of a converted slave named Onesimus. It further notes and analyzes concomitant paranomasia involving the name title Christos and various homonymic terms. All of this wordplay constitutes a key element in Paul's polite, diplomatic, and carefully worded letter. Paul artfully uses Phulemon's name to play on the latter's affections, and to remind him that despite whatever Onesimus may owe, Opheli, Phulemon, Fulimon more than owes Prosophilius his very self, i.e. his life as a Christian, and thus his eternal well-being, to Paul. Hence Phulemon more than owes Paul his request to have Onesimus, who was once useless or unprofitable and without Christ, but is now profitable and well in Christ, as a fellow worker in the gospel." In a further polyptotonic play of Onesimus, Paul expresses his urgent desire to have the benefit of Onesimus in the Lord out of Fulimon's own free will and with his blessing, since all three are now brothers in Christ, and thus slaves to Christ, their true master. In the context of Paul's use of krestos and onimine, Paul's desire for Fuliman's voluntary good deed or benefit to Agathon Sau is to be understood as the granting of Onesimus and as the point and climax of this publicly read letter. In these sixteen chapters, it is hoped the reader will recognize the enormous importance of names in ancient scriptural narrative, not only in the Hebrew Bible— but also in the New Testament, Book of Mormon, and Pearl of Great Price. An awareness of the meaning of names in their narratological context often leads to a deeper understanding of the messages intended by ancient authors and editors, and enhances our appreciation of the meaning of the Temple and its ordinances, which are, among many things, very name-centric. Kevin L. Barney, is the managing partner of the Chicago office of Kutak Rock, LLP, an Omaha-based law firm where he practices public finance law. He received a B.A. in classics from Brigham Young University in 1982, a J.D. from the University of Illinois College of Law in 1985, and an LLM in taxation from DePaul University in 1990. His primary interest in Mormon studies is as a scripturist. He blogs at ByCommonConsent.com. This has been a recording of What's in a Name, playing in the onomastic sandbox by Kevin L. Barney, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 29, 2018, read by Chris Heimerdinger. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license, and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. More information about the Interpreter Foundation along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.